Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we're delighted to have with us Ilya Umansky, a specialist in resilience, governance, risk management, and compliance, investigations, due diligence, asset protection, both information and physical assets, and threat intel. Ilya is joining us from Hong Kong today. Ilya, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, to get things started, we'd love to hear more about yourself, uh, where you grew up, how you got to Hong Kong, how you got into this extremely diverse but interesting uh, field that you're working in now. I was born in Moscow, in Russia, and uh, at the age of 17, I moved to the U.S. Uh, so my formative adult years uh, took place in New York City. I uh, went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice, uh, hence um, a lot of emphasis on policy and strategy because this is this was my uh, both bachelor's and master's. And uh, then I ended up teaching at John Jay in a master's degree program um, some years after that. Um, and uh, yeah, New York has been uh, pretty much uh, the source of a lot of things that um, um, and I carry with me as uh, as a professional, as a person. And so uh, uh, then I moved on with my professional life. Professionally, uh, started at Prudential Financial, uh, got picked out uh, into the global security department straight out of uh, the master's degree program. And uh, basically uh, took it from there. It was uh, such an eye-opening experience. I knew nothing about um, any like all of those uh, titles that you attributed to my name. I knew nothing about those things. I, I kind of was uh, primarily focused on uh, policy analysis and criminal justice and uh, legal matters. And um, uh, in the first two months, um, I got thrown into writing uh, policies for fraud management. Um, then uh, went for my first couple of uh, international trips uh, for the firm. Um, and it kind of grew from there. And then uh, because I joined in 2000, in 2001, uh, we had 9-11 uh, and then Prudential had a direct threat from Al-Qaeda um, uh, on its headquarters. And uh, things evolved far more rapidly than I could have anticipated. Uh, lots of sleepless nights and uh, uh, learning from some of the best people in the industry. So uh, that's where I started. Ilya, first of all, just want to say that it's a real pleasure to talk to you on the podcast. We've we've had the pleasure of, of meeting in person. I just keep going back to what was possibly the last time we we met at, at Pacific Coffee in, in in Wan Chai. Every time I communicate with you, I just I just go back to that and to and to Hong Kong, which is which is always a bittersweet reminder. But in any case, uh, welcome. Let's dive into your work. As Jonathan described what you do, there's there's a lot of words there that sound interesting, but at the same time, I think a lot of listeners probably wonder, okay, what, what, what does that mean exactly? So I was hoping you could provide us with, with some case studies, if you will, that illustrate the kind of work you do, the kind of problems you you tackle, and the kind of, of solutions that you deploy to, to deal with these problems. Thanks a lot, Fred. And uh, yes, it was a pleasure meeting you. I hope that as this pandemic subsides, we get an opportunity to uh, see each other again. So yeah, you, you're absolutely right. There are so many different topics that I cover professionally. Um, and uh, that's just a collection of uh, things that I had done uh, through, I think, 
by now more than 20 years of my career. I think that's also a very good segue because Jonathan asked me about the, this this kind of international background and also the move to Hong Kong. And all of these things are very much interrelated because um, after Prudential, I went to Kroll. And Kroll, as you guys know, is really a... a, a you can best describe it as a um, almost like a problem-solving organization in risk management. Um, they um, uh, have really built a you know solid reputation of basically looking at clients' risks and helping them um, solve different challenges around those risks. And so, with my background at Prudential, where we you know had to oversee the all of the functions uh, across the organization uh, from a an asset protection perspective, then we moved into uh, starting. You know, kind of a role as a consultant at Kroll. And so um, that also entails a lot of international work because Kroll for years have been doing a lot of international projects. Um, and so this is where I think I started little by little um, also learning from people um, who uh, brought, let's say, legal perspective into uh, the risk management domain. And then people who came from the compliance background or people who uh, were just uh, the professional investigators um, and uh, people who were doing due diligence work. Uh, even though um, I had my start at Prudential, um, a lot of my formative, wider experience, broader experience, especially international experience, uh, took place at Kroll. You know, speaking of... Um, uh, let's say the challenges that uh, uh, clients uh, have, I think you can separate them into two big uh, areas. One is the proactive uh, risk management, meaning that you'd be looking at different uh, processes and functions within an organization, be it a government organization or a private sector organization. And you would be um, really trying to solve challenges upstream. You'd uh, develop a bunch of scenarios of uh, negative impact on the on an organization and especially on the organization's objectives and then you'd be uh, looking for ways in which uh, you can address these negative impacts before they take place now we all know that it doesn't happen as often as we all would like uh, the second bucket uh, is um, this reactive um, risk management domain where what you're looking at is a set of challenges that already beset an organization. Many of them are repetitive. Uh, for example, this constant challenge of uh, looking after third-party relationships, verifying integrity of different third parties. And we all know uh, how many incidents take place across that spectrum at the juncture of these relationships between, uh, let's say, a client organization and third parties, uh, all sorts of things, fraud, uh, you know, reputational concerns, um, security concerns, what have you. And so uh, the way we are organized, um, even historically, how I've been doing my work and also today is this ability to look at the client's needs uh, and really hope and really have very meaningful conversations with them about being proactive, but at the same time, um, being humble uh, when you are uh, in, interacting with large organizations that um, you can't have 100% uh, proactive success. Uh, you'll have to deal with incidents and uh, challenges that uh, unfortunately face an organization uh, and um, help them deal with those challenges. Now, most recently, uh, my work has been focused on the challenges of, of reputational uh, uh, risk management. Uh, fraud risk management, and security risk management. And so um, within those, uh, what typically happens is an organization um, gets um, into uh, a challenging situation. Uh, in some cases, it's a, it is an internal uh, source. In some cases, it's a, a threat that occurs uh, externally from a third party uh, and those organizations uh, need assistance. They don't have the resources in-house to be able to mitigate those challenges. And let's say, right the ship, if you will. And so uh, typically they will 
come to uh, practitioners like myself and uh, ask to help them understand, okay, so what is the degree of impact? What is the severity? Uh, what is happening? And uh, really to create this uh, outer perimeter around uh, an incident and help them understand what would be the most optimal way of overcoming this challenge, be it, let's say, sometimes it's done through litigation, and we do a lot of litigation support work. Sometimes it's done through investigative work. And so building leverage for our clients to help either uh, through negotiations or through other means reduce or minimize or avoid impact from negative occurrence such as fraud, such as asset recovery that are necessary. And so we help our clients along those those issues. Now, one thing that is very useful for me is that even in a reactive incident where let's say a client may have lost millions of dollars and uh, they're trying to conduct an asset recovery um, exercise, there's always a moment where we can impress upon our clients how they can stay out of these trouble going forward. So we always try to blend in advisory work where our clients are learning and the, the functional leaders that we're engaged with, they're learning how to get out of trouble, uh, but also how to stay out of trouble going forward. So there's a lot of process work that we do, a lot of um, engagement with um, individual functional leaders to help guide them um, uh, to the root causes of certain um, issues. And um, one situation that occurred recently uh, was with a client who just simply had a pretty uh, archaic uh, and trivial process uh, of their financial controls where um, they were literally conned out of uh, $6 million. And uh, uh, all this happened because uh, a single person received a request for transferring money out to a third party and the same person could process that request to its fullest without requesting any further approvals um, and so that was it's just a very basic breakdown of a of a, an organizational process uh, but what we have done was we helped the client uh, build leverage for litigation and uh, to uh, help lawyers um, freeze assets in uh, different locations and help arm them with arguments so that they could uh, state to the uh, uh, judges, the courts, uh, what happened and uh, why their client was entitled to uh, these asset freezes and recovery. At the same time, we were engaged with the client to help them understand uh, that the process that they have in their organization could be enhanced right away. There's, they don't have to wait till the litigation is done. They don't have to, um, uh, sit back, if you will. And, um, it, it, the, I think that's probably the, the, the most recent, uh, and then best, um, explanation of, uh, of how my work today kind of, uh, is taking shape. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to share more scenarios. Thanks for asking that. I'm really curious about uh, this high net worth family that you helped. I, I read about in your bio. What kind of things did you do for them uh, to protect their uh, their lifestyle? I mean, it seems like you had, you were kind of doing a 365 view of their lives, and and you came back with a uh, with recommendations. How did that work? Thank you for asking that. And uh, that was a very interesting, uh, phenomenal. Uh, exercise in being patient with a family who um, had multiple moving parts um, in their uh, in, in kind of in, in their family in their business and, and so on so what happened with this family was that they had a reputational issues from a sibling uh, and they uh, were also uh, very high profile uh, and they were uh, making some residential changes and they were also making and carefully studying some of the lifestyle um, uh, things that were uh, that, that they just that they, they wanted to make sure that uh, they could stay away from certain risks. And uh, that was also happening at the time when social media was blowing up and uh, there was a lot of things that um, high net worth uh, families and individuals weren't yet taking into consideration relative to their exposure on the internet, on social media and so on. 
And um, they asked me uh, at first uh, a very trivial uh, question. They said, well, so we're moving into this new residence. How do we uh, protect ourselves? Um, the first thing I had done at that point, uh, even before we started like this longer uh, journey of a project with them, uh, I looked at the vantage points. Uh, so I said, I'm going to be a paparazzi and I'm going to see uh, if I can figure out how, uh, you know, how to exploit the location of their residence um, and uh, figure out a way that I can collect information without being on premises. And the fascinating thing was that it took me only 30 seconds to find a fantastic vantage point right into the bedroom of their residence, uh, where the architect did not um, yet design uh, proper um, uh, privacy controls. And so um, you could see pretty much the entire movement of the family uh, being very comfortably set uh, at a remote location. Um, a few, several hundred meters away, uh, without really anyone bothering you. And so, um, that took us then to a very interesting interview where I had the, uh, the, the husband and wife, uh, in front of me. And, uh, I asked them both a question. I said, how would you rate your, um, your savvy, if you will, about, um, protecting your privacy, um, traveling, you know, re with relative obscurity, um, and just kind of thinking ahead of different risks and, and uh, that that uh, that are associated with your family. Now that you can, that you notice a lot of uh, exposure on, on social media and so on, and it, in in that instant, both of them, uh, and I gave them a scale. I said, you know, I guess one to ten, uh, ten being uh, the best and one being the worst, right? And one says eight, another one says two. And it, it was fascinating to observe how they both turned their heads to each other and they kind of gave each other the smirk, kind of said, ah, yeah, we, 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 we actually don't know very well. And so uh, then what we started looking at is um, everybody who surrounded them, for example, their um, the individuals who worked for them on their team, their staff, uh, household staff, and uh, people who uh, were helping them with different business activities. We started uh, discussing uh, their travel patterns. We started discussing um, how some of their younger siblings in the family, family members, uh, were actually um, uh, uh, very exposed on social media uh, and uh, thus potentially causing uh, some negative publicity down the road for uh, the, the couple that I was uh, speaking with. Uh, then we also looked at uh, the fact that they uh, were transporting uh, their young children to a school nearby. And the fact that the driver that was responsible for doing so uh, never had any sort of training uh, and in fact had gotten their driver's license just um, uh, a short time before being hired to actually drive the children. Uh, and we looked at um, how uh, none of the staff in the household have ever been properly vetted. Um, and uh, also how uh, certain um, uh, certain dynamic around the, 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 you know, the, the res residence where they were going to live um, allowed for, a, you know, just very, very close access and very close observation. So uh, a lot of those things, and I'm sorry, I'm throwing all, all this at you. I mean, you can, I hope you're getting a sense of uh, the complex um, challenge that uh, the, the family uh, had. And uh, on top of all that, uh, there were issues with um, privacy online, uh, their own uh, kind of network protection uh, and uh, things that they were sharing uh, online, uh, how they were using their mobile devices, their computing devices at home. Um, none of that was subject to any scrutiny before they hired me to, uh, to, to work with them. And so that was, uh, again, uh, uh, kind of a very complicated, complex situation where I needed to give them a lot of advice. But what struck me most uh, was the behavioral aspect, because in Asia, and I hope you've, you 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 know this uh, from your practice, um, it's very uh, in, in a lot of places people um, kind of trust the environment. In, in most places in Hong Kong, everybody's in their screen, uh, nobody really lifts their heads, uh, and so you can literally bump into people 
you know, multiple times if you're not paying attention. And this is how this family was kind of carrying themselves. They were kind of trusting the environment. Um, and at the same time, they had these background concerns about privacy, about the fact that a family member uh, was now more and more exposed uh, in social media, and in many cases in some negative context. So uh, what I, um, what, one of the challenges was to start with the change of behavior, which started with the uh, habit building. Uh, and uh, the way uh, we started doing this is I had to be uh, very patient to help them first understand that there are certain challenges that they are facing and agree with that fact. Because a lot of clients, um, I hope you also recognize this, sometimes they'll be in denial about the fact that they have certain um, uh, uh, risks that may um, affect them. So the behavioral aspect is uh, very much at the forefront, both in that particular uh, case with the high net worth family, but also with the boards of directors that, that sometimes I advise and uh, with senior managers that we work with uh, or with uh, other private clients. Ilya, your answer to this uh, last question combined with one of your recent videos, I forget when exactly it, it came out, you had some comments about the events at the Capitol on January 6th. And thinking about that, thinking about what you just said and the complexities associated with your work, I just have to ask you, and we are recording this on the 26th of August. We'll be publishing this a little bit later, but just, just to situate listeners with some horrendous news coming out of Afghanistan. So I would love to hear your perspectives about what's been happening there. And and again, I, I wouldn't make the jump from your last answer to this by itself. It's because I also know that you had some very interesting comments about what happened at the Capitol in January. So I would imagine that you also have at least some observations about what's been happening in Afghanistan, more specifically with, with what's been happening at the airport with the evacuation. And of course, we're not trying to determine correct U.S. policy for, for the entire Afghanistan situation, but I'm thinking specifically of things that, that you have noticed that might have surprised you or, or perhaps even shocked you in terms of the execution of this exit. Thank you for asking that. You're, you're, you're asking uh, a question that dwarfs in complexity what, I, what, the, what situation I just described, but I will try. Um, I will try with, um, with one caveat that um, I'm always uh, very sad to see um, that our service members um, are put in positions where um, they exceed the, um, the norms of what we believe the combat should be or um, how they can possibly facilitate um, safe passage to innocent civilians. Um, and we're, we're witnessing it literally now as, as we're recording this because a serious incident just occurred um, and many lives have been lost. And it, it saddens me to, to no end to, to see how um, we are stepping out, outside of the boundaries of um, politically negotiated solutions and going into uh, armed conflict. Uh, so um, my observations, and if I could, had to connect them with uh, January 6th, um, are such that it seems to me not, in, and again, I want to preface this by saying that um, I have never served in the uh, U.S. Armed Forces. I, I uh, had worked extensively with uh, American law enforcement uh, and um, other uh, government agencies um, as when I was at Prudential and when I was at Kroll. I also worked with the governments uh, and, and various you know, military and law enforcement uh, branches uh, in, in, with foreign governments as well. Um, it seems to me that um, the challenges that we continue to face uh, are they have root causes that are that have historic, like a very wider historic context, and unfortunately are a product of um, uh, what's happening with general kind of 
with the, with the general government in the United States, with the polarity of our, uh, with, with the discord, with uh, uh, lack of agreement, with partisanship. Uh, and so it seems like the policies that are, that are being constructed, uh, that are being then executed on the ground are a product of um, uh, a government that functions in, a, in, in less than optimal way. Um, so that's, a, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I'm making this general comment, but I don't believe that, like, for example, that situation can be viewed only tactically. I mean, we got ourselves uh, to Afghanistan many years ago, and now we are um, trying to facilitate this exit however well we can. But that's a product uh, of, you know, more of a historic policy making, uh, decision making by people, it seems to me, who... Um, who had a lot of disagreement. They, they chose shortcuts, it seems to me. And again, I have policy uh, analysis background. I can see many shortcuts by government officials that got us to the point where we are. So noting that, I can, I can see that what is happening today with the, this, well, quote unquote, facilitated exit, it, it certainly does not look like a, a well-planned uh, strategy, a well-planned uh, set of uh, activities. And I feel like because of that, we're, we're witnessing, we're sitting back and the, I've, I've heard the word shock and awe uh, just you know, in recent weeks, uh, more often uh, through a variety of channels and thinkers that we're, we're, all, uh, uh, we're all, I'm sure, are following. Uh, from, from regardless of the partisan affiliation, uh, but this this shock and awe about how could we possibly have gotten ourselves to a situation uh, on the ground that that we are witnessing now? How could it possibly have been a product of careful, uh, prudent policy making? Uh, I that's, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sounding as if I'm asking myself and everyone else a question here, but I feel like, um, uh, you know, here, once again, we're looking at uh, a product of just bad decision-making. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm looking at the tactical execution and I say, oh yeah, it's all, it's all bad. Um, things were not necessarily all bad about the January 6th event either. There was uh, some decision-making that needed to happen and go in a certain direction in order to uh, facilitate some level of protection. But uh, these two events, they have some similarities in the, in the sense that security, if you look at the, at the study in the field of asset protection, has a very important component that none of us actually practices and, and, and understand very well. It's the element of time and delay. The farther away my threat, the more time I have to make my decisions. The closer my threat, the less time I have to make decisions. When I make decisions under stress with limited time, I make mistakes. It's just, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, that's the trivial answer to your question. How could we possibly have allowed um, uh, such rapid decision-making to happen under tremendous stress for our service members uh, in a tactical situation uh, where the enemy is looking them straight in the eye? We're not, we don't have any time or delay happening. And uh, the same happened with January 6th. The same happened with um, is happening with uh, what, we, what we're doing in Afghanistan, and it seems to me, and as I said about the January sixth event, is that there was a failure of security. Now, uh, the security, the way I understand it, because by the time we get to face our threat, um, if we haven't, uh, th this should be like the very last resort after we have already completed a series of other steps to help mitigate the issue uh, um, upstream, if you will, 
Um, and here is where I'm seeing these parallels. And so, you know, I appreciate you asking this, this question that I'm challenged by it. And I'm still thinking about, you know, a variety of solutions. But what seems to me uh, to be the, the best parallel here is simply um, putting people uh, and their lives in danger and making them make decisions without any, uh, without any time uh, allotment. With and under severe stress and uh, without any distance from the threat. I'm answering it the best way I can at the moment. I want to reiterate that um, it makes me feel uh, very sad and, and, and very sorry for the families who will not see their sons and daughters come back. Ilya, let's talk a little bit about something more that I consider very hopeful, right? Which is mentoring the next generation. Um, from following you on LinkedIn, it's clear you have a commitment to mentoring. I understand that Fred can personally attest to your willingness to counsel others on, on career matters. I think we all understand why it's good and important, but I'd love to hear why you think it's important. And also, if you have advice for others who are thinking about uh, whether it's worth it spending time, uh, you know, taking calls and emails from people who you don't know, from students, from, from other hopeful job seekers. This is a very important topic for me. Uh, simply because I remember myself being picked out of John Jay by my mentor, who basically took a chance on me. And uh, I can join the army of these young practitioners who are stepping into um, uh, organizations um, in, in the risk management uh, domain, um, who very often will say that, yeah, I just, I got lucky. You know, it happened um, kind of by accident. I just ran into a person and they happened to like me. I don't know why, why but they kind of liked my resume, maybe something, whatever. Um, but I hear the word luck and accident repeatedly for the last 20 years. And so, uh, and, and I, I want to just also say that I hear this within my discipline. Like if you, if you had to think about, okay, so, uh, you know, risk management, but primarily um, investigative world, the world of security, uh, or as they call it, asset protection, right? So in this world, a lot of people could say that, uh, well, you know, I just got lucky or I got into the industry by accident. Well, why is it? You know, me being putting my policy analyst hat on or um, remembering my experience. I've been asking this question for, for the last 10, 15 years, saying, like, why don't we do something to change this? And so um, this question of um, helping young and aspiring professionals um, enter our industry, uh, being uh, more, more astute, uh, more capable, more credible, um, and uh, uh, being able to jump into projects um, from the get-go uh, is something that that I uh, I value very much because I don't want people to have had um, just a you know just this a version of my experience. I would like for young practitioners to uh, have a platform where it's they they can understand a little bit better of how to move into our industry. What would be the steps like? And I equate this to um, a few very well known professions: um, uh, law. Um, engineering, medicine, uh, architecture. And I've worked with every one of these um, uh, professionals before. If I want to become uh, a lawyer, I kind of know what my path needs to be. Like there has to be law school. There has to be, uh, you know, some clerkships and practice and apprenticeships and things like that, right? Before you actually become a practicing attorney. Uh, the same goes for doctors. The same goes for architects. They have this path of professional development where um, you understand where likely the spectrum or the boundaries of where you're going to end up. Well, I can say that it's not yet the case for our side of the aisle. And uh, I notice uh, how uh, young professionals come with very mixed backgrounds, but also very mixed uh, set of skills, even though they're all applying for the same uh, position. Uh, and I just went, I, I don't know if you've seen uh, a recent post, I just went through a hiring cycle and it was uh, startling for me to see uh, how the skills, just the verbal and nonverbal communication skills alone are lacking 
uh, in young and aspiring professionals. Now, uh, that's not just a feature of their um, laziness. I don't believe uh, that most of them uh, are, are lazy. I think we as guides, uh, we having been uh, in our professional field for years, maybe have let them down to some extent. And also universities that um, still cannot um, facilitate uh, um, in some shape or form equitable education, or at least uh, you know the baseline education uh, for within you know, to, to bring talent into our profession, I believe is an atrocity. And so I address my students um, through um, a seven domain program where um, it, it's actually it's, it's it's a continual learning platform that's called Sphere State. And uh, I, I guide them through these seven skill domains. And uh, I build that platform, which is online, and uh, any uh, aspiring practitioner can, can join it and uh, uh, learn along a, a something that's a little bit more curated, a little bit more formalized, almost as if you're going through a, a proper college course. Um, and so that's a long answer to, uh, to, to your question. But I, I notice how... Um, you know, we we as uh, practitioners in the field of, let's say, security uh, and investigations, uh, we have been a bit underserved because all we have is professional associations who charge us money for certifications and, and stuff like that. We don't have a solid academic base. We don't have uh, something that, let's say, an engineer, uh, aspiring engineer, aspiring doctor, aspiring uh, architect um, uh, would would be exposed to in order to grow in their in their careers. Ilya, as we start winding down, I, I want to highlight the fact that it's not only the two of us that are linked by our connection to to Hong Kong. You you still live there. I lived there for many years. Jonathan as well uh, lived there. So even though none of us are are natives of the place. We all have a connection to to the city, and I feel comfortable speaking for Jonathan. He shares that affection I have for the city. So, you know, the fact that you have spent a considerable part of your career there in Hong Kong, how, how has that shaped your career? Uh, how do you think things would have been different if if you had stayed in 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 the United States for the duration of your professional life, or or perhaps if you had gone to to some other country? Do you think there's been a, a particular flavor that Hong Kong has given to your work, or do you think that more or less it would have been it would have been the same? No, and thank you for asking that. This is a, a very important part of uh, just my professional and personal life. Uh, we moved to Hong Kong in 2012 uh, from New York. Um, not, I mean, we were bicultural. My wife and I we were both were born in, in Russia, and uh, we uh, lived in the States for many years, uh, but we considered ourselves uh, proper Americans, you know, living in suburbia um, and uh, just uh, kind of uh, embracing the American life. Um, and moving to Hong Kong reminded us uh, of our bicultural, um, I guess, advantage, I, I, I should say. Uh, and it, it taught us that the world is far greater and far more um, complicated or, or complex, I should say, uh, than if you look at, if you only look at it through the lens of the United States. Uh, and it, you know, to be honest with you, I, I actually uh, am quite critical of people who apply simply an American mindset to um, everything else they see internationally. Okay, so the, it might have been actually also a mistake of our politicians, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll leave it at that. But what it what it what it taught me was that you have to be infinitely more adaptable. Uh, you have to uh, you will be exposed to uh, not only people from different walks of life because America has that right, but also these very deep cultural values that look nothing like what you would have in the States or living in, a, in another country. And so what Hong Kong does for you when you move here is it's not just the city itself uh, because it's so tiny. Um, most major destinations in Asia are within a six hour flight. 
from Hong Kong. And so what it did for me was I arrived, I believe, in August of 2012 uh, with my family in tow. Um, and within a couple of months, I was in Manila. I never have never been to Manila up until that time. And when I landed, I was humbled immediately upon arrival. And then I uh, went to Malaysia, uh, to Kuala Lumpur, first time in Kuala Lumpur, uh, humbled beyond belief, looking at how um, beautiful a city like, uh, not, not, not even KL, but if you go to Putrajaya, that is astonishing what, what a culture can build. Uh, and also maintain some of its um, uh, kind of cultural sense about what the, how they're building a city, right? And every one of those experiences reminded me that I actually needed to um, uh, behave and live more and more as a multicultural person, being humble and respectful of how other societies uh, carry on with their lives and uh, also designing solutions uh, to, to mitigate certain problems, uh, being respectful and mindful of how those solutions could be um, applied within different cultures, within different um, uh, groups. Um, for example, I worked in Indonesia and um, we uh, were having casual conversation. You know, it was a huge organization um, uh, and very, very remarkable, very well connected in the country. One of the largest uh, uh, businesses uh, for, for Indonesia. And it was wonderful to see how astute they were about local politics, um, risk management. Uh, and the fact when I visited one of their production facilities, I was blown away by the fact that that facility was designed completely bespoke by a local team. And it was by leaps and bounds better than some international facilities I've seen in the West. Okay. Uh, and so the, I'm sorry, again, I'm giving you a bit of a long answer, but uh, I think it's quite quite deserved here because I've, I've had such a rich experience living here. Um, and uh, I think professionally, it informed me about a few things. One is you have to be humble. Two is you, you can't look at everything from the lens of your uh, past um, upbringing. For example, like either being a Russian or being a, an American, obviously that experience helps, but you also have to uh, take in uh, how the local community lives, how the society uh, lives, how people think in different uh, uh, parts of, of Asia and the rest of the world. So you have to embrace that in order to design solutions, uh, particularly risk management solutions, that would be acceptable. Now, and I'll give you an anecdote here. Uh, a big insurance company uh, came to me and they said, we need you to mediate. I said, I don't do that. This is not something, I'm not a mediator. But they said, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, we have an American global security team that is forcing on our Manila team their security standards. And the, our Manila general manager is up in arms. He's about to fire off an email to the CEO of the company telling them either I resign or you, 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 know, you tell those people to stop bugging me with these nonsensical standards. Now, why was that uh, not, why were they nonsensical? It's because they took an uh, American, uh, let's say, technology, and they were telling a team in Manila to go and implement it. And the team in Manila says, do you even understand our level of capability and access to this type of technology? We don't have people who could possibly run this. And if we had to buy it, we would be buying it at a significant premium uh, compared to similar products that exist in our local market. So they were just up and in arms saying how insensitive a global security team was uh, when they were trying to apply their international standards to this um, operation in the Philippines. And so um, I've learned a great deal living here. My family has benefited tremendously. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my daughter is now uh, turning 12 soon. She grew up here. She, she came here when she was uh, two and a half. So uh, my son is about to finish school and uh, go off to college. And uh, most of his uh, formative years now as a, as a uh, teenager, he spent uh, here in, 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 in Asia. And uh, I could see the same type of, I guess, humble character and uh, multicultural sensitivity um, rubbing off on them in a very positive way.
Ilya, it's been wonderful having you with us on the podcast today. You've you've done several things for me. One, you've convinced me that you are an exceptionally decent human being, and and uh, I don't pass that compliment out lightly. Second, you made me miss Hong Kong and, and Greater Asia quite a bit. And third, you made insurance sound fascinating and, and interesting, <laughs> which is almost impossible to do. <laughs> uh, you 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 brought your uh, descriptions brought me. Uh, you brought up images of the Thomas Crown Affair and the oceans. My favorite, some of my favorite movies, the oceans, 11, 12, and 13, right? With the, with the heist and, and the, they, they do give a nod to the insurance industry and, and everything that's going on. So certainly uh, enjoyed having you with us. And we always love to close with recommendations. So do you have anything that you've read recently or watched or listened to that you recommend for our listeners? Well, first of all, it's a privilege to have joined you and to experience your approach uh, to kind of our different topics through through your lens. I really appreciate it. And so one recommendation I would have for everyone is to pay attention to the book that's called Upstream by Dan Heath. So why? In that book, and it's a humble book, I, I can't imagine that it was uh, very, you know, very widely sold or, you know, even though I think it's a bit of a bestseller, but, you know, I don't, I, I think it, you know, every book has its short shelf life and then it kind of goes into obscurity. So I feel like uh, maybe it has, it's at the end of its uh, run, uh, be, having been published about a year ago. Um, so upstream actually um, challenges us as practitioners and even us as uh, just, you know, private individuals, um, about this notion that we keep on experiencing challenges without looking back at the root causes and saying, well, couldn't I have uh, done something about it to prevent this from happening? And uh, this is what I spend a lot of my time professionally doing. And also um, personally with my family, we do similar things. Like and we're all stuck in a pandemic and we had to go through different scenarios of, you know, how are we going to manage our life? What, what is it going to look like? Uh, and so this book, I found to be fascinating and very informative uh, for anyone, uh, be it professionally or personally, about how do you rethink your approach uh, to dealing with challenges and why is it that we, uh, you know, we kind of accept the fact that, oh, it's just going to hit me and then I'm going to deal with it at that, at that point. People, I think, don't think enough about um, cognitive decline during stress and that what this book does very very carefully uh, is help us um, avoid our um, stress in professional life uh, I, I want to um, throw in one more resource for folks to to think about it since it's a very old uh, book uh, uh, written by uh, Charles Perrow that's called normal normal accidents uh, it's it very much in the same vein, uh, but he's a professor and uh, he studied nuclear disasters uh, and the disasters in other industries. And uh, he very carefully made a point of saying that the more complex our world our world will be, the more systems, uh, I mean, think about cryptocurrencies or think about what we're doing with crypto exchanges and uh, the complexity of these tech um, products that, that are coming out to the market. Uh, he said that the more complex our world will be, the, the larger and more, um, uh, more devastating the disasters will be. And uh, I take that uh, advice with me uh, every time to every client, uh, just thinking about um, how do we uh, think through the complexity of organizations and how do we think through complexity that unfortunately is hitting our lives as well. So uh, those are the two things I would recommend. Excellent. Thank you. Fred, what do you have for us? Sort of following up on Ilya's comments about the benefits of being exposed to different perspectives, I'd like to make a, a general recommendation, but within that offer, a more specific one. On YouTube, you can actually watch live uh, feeds for numerous news channels from around the world. Within that, I, I find myself often watching Sky News, which is a, a, a British news channel. Think of it as the, the British CNN, but much better than CNN, frankly. I find it valuable to get different perspectives and to see 
where the focus is uh, as opposed to to coverage here in the United States. And obviously, if you look at Sky News, if you look at France 24, if you look at Al Jazeera, you're going to see differences, right? I mean, you can you can choose any or, or all of them, but I think it's a, a, a very useful exercise. And if you are uh, a news junkie, and I can certainly be when I have the time, and if there's a particularly important world event, such as what, what we've been experiencing over the past uh, few days, and you're glued to the TV, that's, that's fine. But you might want to consider tuning in to one of these feeds for a cycle or two, hearing these different perspectives. And at least in my experience, the caliber of the reporting is better than any of our local equivalents here in the U.S. So let's have the, the Sky News live feed as the official recommendation. But again, there's others and others that I probably haven't heard about that you can tune into. So Jonathan, what do you have for us this week? I think I gave a similar recommendation last episode, but this is another newsletter because I often find myself enjoying reading the news more than listening to someone else's opinion about what the news is. And I know there's bias in writing as well, but that, that's my preferred way to, to intake uh, what's going on in the world. So this particular recommendation is the Sup China morning newsletter. They, it comes out every morning, something that I subscribed to maybe a month ago. And I like SubChina because they their tagline is reporting on China without fear or favor. And that resonated well with me as someone who I think it's probably the legal training, right? I don't, I don't want anyone to give me their spin on what's going on. I want the facts. And you can give me your opinion about the facts, but I want to make sure I'm getting the facts. And of course, uh, you know, every everyone has their own writing bias and which stories get selected, of course, is another way to, to show bias or reflect the bias. But at the same time, I don't like being preached to and I like being able to digest things for myself. And so I appreciate the news that SubChina gives. It's not super long, uh, but digestible, right? If you have 10 or 15 minutes in the morning and you want to know what are the big things coming out of China and you don't want to go to anything that's coming out of any official Chinese sources or any other Western sources that may have you know an ax to grind against China, if you just want the unvarnished news, uh, this is a, I found it to be a really helpful resource. So that's the SubChina morning newsletter. And with that, Ilya, we want to thank you again for being with us today. It's been wonderful. Thanks for getting up early. Uh, we hope uh, you can get your kids off to school or whatever they're up to today. And we look forward to checking in with you again in the future. Privileged to be with you and uh, thank you for the opportunity. We'll do, I'll do a real one because I think I went too fast on that. I want to pause a bit between my words. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music.